0: Welcome.
1: Welcome to the A Fire Podcast, now streaming on Apple, Google, Spotify, and more. Each episode features real and honest conversations with thought leaders from around the world at all levels of the commercial real estate and investing business, examining the ideas and questions fundamental to the future of our industry. Where are we now? What happens next? What should we do about it? How do we become better investors, leaders, and global citizens? For more, here's our host and the CEO of AFIRE, Gunnar Branson.
0: Change is coming. Look out. The general consensus in real estate is that the tech disruption that has already impacted all sorts of other industries is now on its way towards us. And with over 50 billion in new prop tech investments over the last two years, the changes are coming faster and faster all the time. Now just like any other industry that has been hyphenated with tech, there is a lot of excitement around prop tech, and a lot of hype and a lot of confusion. Investors want to get involved, but how can they better discern which companies have a better chance of succeeding and which ones do not? I decided to sit down with the co-founder of a successful prop tech company, Gobi, Chris Happ, uh, to get his insights on how to look at the prop tech space. So thank you, Chris, for joining me on the AFIRE podcast.
2: Yeah, it's my pleasure. I, I marked this down on my list of, um, or my bucket list, I should say. It's been on there for some time, and and uh, I can uh, put a check next to this one.
0: Well, I'm I'm honored that you think uh, this uh, belongs on your bucket list, but I'm not quite sure what kind of bucket uh, this <laughs> is. So let's start with this. What was it like to start up a prop tech company?
2: Well, that's an interesting thought. I got a. a go back and, and um, uh, refresh the memory. Um, I started it in 2008 and prop tech, I don't believe was a thing at the time. Uh, I didn't know anything about real estate. Certainly I had never heard of the term prop tech. I had sold just recently a business to a French company. I had started a supply chain um, business that would help optimize purchasing it for Fortune 50 companies. And there was a French, a public French company that was looking at getting into um, the cloud and wanted a US presence. And so um, it was a logical acquisition. And um, I had sort of uh, worked through my earnout period after the acquisition and just wanted to uh, challenge myself with something different. Um, I had a the friend and I, the former, um, or the co-founder of the previous business that I work with had, uh, I was living in New York at the time and, and he was in Chicago and kind of had gotten into this, um, I guess I'll say green movement and said, Hey, we should start something in the space. and we kind of stumbled into it. It was um, he had said, "I think there's something to this lead concept." So lead is leadership and energy and environmental design, and it's a really targeted at the built environment. And so we had went and got our lead accreditation, which is a, a personal accreditation you can you can get. And so we went and did that. It was a, somewhat of a pay- Making process akin to the college days when you basically memorize facts and recite them on a test. And once you can recite 90% or above, um, you're now accredited. Um, And, you know, sort of removing the tongue from the cheek, it was a good process. There was a lot of things to to learn there. But one of the biggest things that that turned me onto was the potential impact in the real estate or the built environment. I would. I always had a sort of um, uh, awestruck relationship with cities and the buildings and the skyscape or the, the sort of um, cityscape when you looked at it. And but I had never really thought about what went on inside a building or even how that worked. And when you started thinking about how much energy and how many how much, what types of resources were consumed in a large building, it was um, really quite fascinating. Really, there are many cities that run within a city and have their own cultures and identities and all sorts of things. Uh, so it was just kind of a fascinating concept to me and something I wanted to get closer to. And it turned out that I had met at a Chicago bulls game when I was in town, the owner of a, a building. And it was a father-son. And um, he had said, uh, this is probably over several years, um, years at the time but we basically agreed to trade a getting his building lead certified um, for some rent in his building and so the Gobi was born i didn't realize it at the time he basically had no you know this is 2008 he wasn't leasing anything so it was a no-brainer deal for him because uh, it helped him potentially save money and make the building more marketable and i was taking space that he couldn't give it well he did give away basically and so um, Gobi was born um, then and, and, and that, you know, really that uh, that's how it got started. And I think probably it wouldn't have started. Had I actually thought through uh, there's probably a lot of you know, most businesses and business owners you talk to when they look back, you know, there's so many reasons not to do it or you don't really know why you got into it. And, and this was probably the same because had I anything about real estate. had I, I called you and said, hey, I'm thinking about quitting my job and starting a real estate business in this prop tech space, what do you think? I'm guessing the advice wouldn't have been proceed. And I guess it turns out once you jump out of the plane um, uh, without it, without the parachute, so to speak, you'll figure it out. Um, well, that or the, the alternative. And, and, and the, in that case, we figured it out.
0: And by the time I met you, Gobi was working with quite a few institutional clients and, and you had evolved your approach to data and data analytics, more importantly, can you can you explain a bit about that and and your thinking?
2: Yeah, it was uh, it went from tactical. You know, how do I take the energy consumption or resource consumption in a building or an asset or a piece of an asset to what does this mean? And and really, um, I think it it really dawned on me that these small bits of data are sort of individually less relevant. And what becomes more impactful is turning that piece of data into information. We got bigger, we got more and more pieces of data that we could turn into information. And so because we were in and and capturing um, the really utility bills for all of these assets, we had a lot of insight into what was happening, not just around energy, but you started to be able to see patterns and trends that um, I thought had bigger potential for impact than just what we were using them for at the time or what we were hired for. So the tactical um, blocking and tackling reason we were we were brought in, and I, I think um, what I really liked um, was the notion of. Well, I have to admit, I was I was kind of turned on to the concept uh, by a TED Talk. It was the Opower CEO, and O Power is the algorithm that puts on a individual utility bill the smiley face, or maybe it's a bar graph of yourself against your neighbor or against your block or your zip code or what have you. And they basically were trying did a bunch of behavioral research and and said putting sort of sticky notes and things in bills said you could save money, you could save the planet, and the only thing they found to make meaningful impact was to say here's you, here's your neighbor and people then started to make change that sort of competition And so sort of taking that concept to, here's energy used or water used or the waste bill in an asset, and then applying that and saying, here's every waste bill at every asset and applying some sort of AI and data analytics to say, you use more than you should, became a lot more interesting. And then when you start going there, you can start taking it to all the other pieces of do I lease more than I should? Do I have more visitors than others? Do I, um, is my security safer or not than others based on how many people come in or how fast, whatever those questions are, um, the ability to sort of get the, at the information and then summarize it and, and compare it became a lot more interesting to me personally than just the initial reason or just for the or initial point of getting the data.
0: Every time we talk about technology and data, real estate folks, they, they get this hangdog expression on their faces and say something like, well, we can't, we can't do big data. We don't have enough. Um, you know, there's this feeling that the, the, the data sets that real estate knows just aren't comprehensive enough to do any real analytics. But listening to you, it's, it's clear to me that, that actually we do have uh big data or we do have that capability within the real estate and a lot of groups have started to uh put data science to work of course the the big data may not be where we think it is it's not in say lease comps but it might be in energy use
2: 100 percent. and you know to, to truly have big data i guess it's orders of magnitude um you you May not want to compare the amount of data that we have in um, or that's current be, currently being evaluated in real estate to the number of tweets that come through per second and analyzing that. It's just a different scale, but it doesn't mean it's not in, in the scale we're dealing big data or relevant just the same. You know, if we put a video camera on every asset that we owned and just started uh, consuming the feed, you know, Google for now... Or just as an example, Amazon, Google, they all have AI that can read a um, read a stream of video. And we, so we could be consuming that and, and generating as much data um, from every single camera that we have at a building, uh, much the same way you could uh, the, the Twitter feed that's going through. So the, the data is there. It's what do you do with it? Um, some of it tickles uh, intellectual curiosity and there's not much use for it. And then others, I think, is is um, a lot more valuable and, and often overlooked uh, in what people do with it. I, um, you know, I would challenge. I, this is what I've come to in terms of. You know, are you ready to handle this? I sort of look at um, an organization. I can tell quickly and say, do you have a CTO or do you have a CIO? that who runs your it group. And when they tell me I have a CTO a chief technology officer, I say, all right, so basically you have someone who makes sure email works and puts up firewalls. And that's, that's fine. That's a very necessary thing. But in the information economy and where we're at, I think the evolution is you want a CIO, the, the product you're really trying to cultivate is information. So part of the blocking and tackling is getting things in place to collect the information, i.e. the technologies that do that. But really, the sole function of doing that is to get information from pieces of data. And so what do you want? And then why do you want it? And then how do you collect it? And then the biggest challenge with data is how do you make it? How do you normalize it or, or put for lack of a better word, hashtags on it that allow you to compare it. That's really the challenge of, of data is is putting it or structuring it in such a way that you can compare it. And a lot of people don't get that. And that's where I can ask immediately to, a comp- you know, to look at a company. And if they have a CTO, they think of it as a back of house. CIO uh, thinks of it as this is going to be part of our future. Information is what we sell and we're going to outperform information.
0: We are seeing a large number and a wide variety of new prop tech companies. It, it, it's hard to figure out where these companies are going. You know, What do you look for, Chris, when you are trying to ascertain the potential of a prop tech firm? Are, are there any flags that, that give you insights into future performance?
2: Yeah, and you know, I think one, one way to think about this, so if I put the um, CIO hat on, And, and start to say what technologies, and I think this is where you're getting at is how do I, as a, as a executive at a real estate company, start to evaluate or understand which technologies may make it. And I think one of the things that is a, an unfortunate side effect of, uh, really the, I guess the bidding process or the, the um, RFP process that we've set up, but what we do with technology today is we put a big uh, cross-functional team together and say, hey, we're at a point where we think we need technology to solve problem X. So let's develop this large RFP um, everyone put down everything they want and then we're going to go interview three or four companies that say they do it. Generally, this has been pushed by one of those companies or by peers that say, Hey, we have this a technology that does X or Y and you should be looking at it or you start to you know follow news feeds and you just start seeing it. And so you decide your company needs it. Um, and, and so you, uh, do this exhaustive search, and it could be a six, nine month process, and then you pick a technology that you really haven't piloted, don't really understand, but you've sort of seen it on paper and and think it's gonna work, and then go through this implementation process. The way technology um, or software is generally built today is that it, it uses an agile development process in that we've decided in technology, If you spend six months designing something and then go build it and it takes another six months, the the very thing you were trying to build has changed beneath you in that 12 month window. So you're irrelevant and your process is just sort of flawed. You're better off uh, in what they call sprints where you're gonna create sort of a workable product every week or two weeks or four weeks and then release it and then get feedback and then release it and get feedback. And it's this constant iteration and it strikes me, you mentioned this in, in a TED talk you had done, which I, I thought was incredible, was this concept of desire lines. And people are going to use, or you know natural paths will happen. When we happen in tech too, Twitter um, desire, sort of uh, famous desire lines, the app. And um, so if you're retweeting at, at somebody, that was um, sort of a hack that that users had put in. And then they incorporated um, in, in the product. So that's really the concept is is rather than overthinking technology, how do you um, pilot fast and sort of punt faster? You should have a budget, I think, for failed technology projects, which is a good thing. You're trying things and you get rid of them quickly. So why not try 10 things or you got four or five different software products rather than running this rfp process you know what you think you want or you want to try some things put them in and try them and run a, and and see what desire lines form within the um company so a lot of times it sets up these guide rails not to allow software in or not to allow technology in that it all has to run through them you're sort of stifling the organization that way so my advice would be well, hey, if you've got four or five things that seem interesting to you, try them and then see which ones stick and see which ones um, have potential and maybe aren't ready. There's a lot that are. you can look at and go, this is really, really cool. It's not ready for me, but I'm going to keep this on the list and look at this a year from now because I bet it's going to have evolved in a way I want. Some of you might try and go, this had this thing was so hyped. I was so ready for it to be great. And it just it's not gonna work, it's just another dashboard and that's not something that is gonna add value for me. So I think that's you know a really um, fundamental shift in the way people should be viewing technology. I don't know if people are ready to do that where it's, uh, you should have a lot of projects fail but it should be a creative endeavor and trying things and letting things sort of happen that way.
0: Creative endeavor, it requires an adjustment I think. Uh, to process, especially to the, the typical real estate process, creating and using at the same time. I, I mean, it's it's a tricky thing to do. Um, but I, I, I see where you really do need it when it comes to thinking about new tech. Um, you can't just throw the Marines at it. You can't just you know really kind of go in and make it work and will it to work, whether it's a database implementation or it's a new processor, a a new app that sits on everyone's phones. I I really hear you when it comes to having to stumble around and, and to understand how things work, learn about them, adjust to them, adapt what you're doing to them, or make the decision after you've had a chance to stumble around with it to potentially drop it. It all seems to be a part of the process. Well, and now, you know, real estate firms are looking to get directly into investing in the prop tech space does that does that make sense to you? Um, do you think real estate firms are are going to have an advantage perhaps or a disadvantage versus uh, the the traditional venture capital firms? How should they look at
2: it? That's an interesting interesting question. and It it makes a lot of sense that um, firms would want to get into the prop tech space. Um, You you have an industry where uh, technology can make the underlying asset more valuable or more efficient or um, create leasing velocity. There's a lot of things that these technologies can do. And as the owner of the asset or a a heavy influencer of it, they're in a position to not only pilot the technologies but then adopt them in in mass. So there's uh, a a relationship there which they can find and, and invest in and cultivate great ideas and make them successful and thereby, you know, obviously uh, reap the rewards of that success. So it makes a lot of sense. And the, I think the model is a great one. It, it, you know, both parties win in that, in that case. So it, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, the flip side of that is do these technologies in some way disrupt the owner of the asset? So if I found a technology that um, uh, wired up a building, and it, this maybe is not the best example, but um, what what kind of technology could I put in a building that ultimately made it easier to um, replicate work working from the office but at home so I could set up sort of a virtual office within the office? Have I then decreased the value of that physical asset? because I can no longer need to be there and and replicate what that's like. Or I could take less space in the asset and replicate this physical environment uh, via a digital world. So are they disrupting themselves by doing this? Is that a small piece of it? Are they giving themselves visibility into the potential disruption? I think there's a lot of really interesting questions and perhaps not all of those are fully um, thought through or even even explored it, you know in the simple case or the base case you could just say well hey we can help these deploy these technologies in our asset uh, if i invest in several of them and one of them makes it that's a great win we're already set up as an investment vehicle we understand how to invest in things we understand that Um, We can look at multiple things in a pool of investments. So they understand the concept uh, a lot more than other industries, I think. And they're entrepreneurial. Uh, Real estate is quite entrepreneurial, uh, at least in my opinion, compared to other industries. Um, I've been in consulting the first 15 years of my career or so, or 10 10 years of my career. So I saw a lot of different industries. Um, So a lot of it makes sense. Uh, I think a lot of it's um, yet to play out, though.
0: So we're going to pick up this conversation again in part two, where we will discuss with Chris new product development, business disruption and
1: baseball. Please visit afire.org slash podcast.